Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. It's good to have you here. This is episode 149 of the Ranching Reboot Podcast, and I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. Today on the podcast, meet Carolyn Rose, a third-generation rancher who's breaking the mold. Carolyn embodies the diverse roles a modern rancher can play. Tune in to get swept up in Carolyn's mission, not just to preserve agriculture, but to evolve it. But first, message from our sponsors. This week's episode is sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust is an innovative platform that unlocks access to private land for hunting and fishing, providing sportsmen and outdoor enthusiasts with unique opportunities to pursue Ah, pursue their passions on private properties. Founded in 2019, Land Trust operates in over 39 states across the U.S., offering access to more than a million acres of private land. As a landowner, you have full control of the availability of your land, the pricing, and usage rules. Listing your property on Land Trust is free, and you can earn significant income by hosting sportsmen for hunting, fishing, and other outdoor activities. With some landowners having the potential to earn over 20,000 bucks a year. Don't worry about your liability. Each booking is covered with a $2 million general liability insurance policy, giving you peace of mind and security. For sportsmen, access to private land. Land Trust offers affordable and easy access to over a million acres of private land for hunting and fishing, previously inaccessible to many. Whether it's hunting in the Great Plains or fishing in a private pond, Land Trust offers a variety of outdoor experiences across the United States. Check out Land Trust today and see what they have to offer at landtrust.com or click the link in the show notes. This week, I'll be at Salina, in Salina, Kansas for Soil Health U, presented by the High Plains Journal. If you've never been to Soil Health U, it's a really fun and informative time in Salina at the Tony's Pizza Event Center. With a schedule packed full of great breakout sessions and keynotes, Soil Health U is a great place to kick off the winter conference season. From talks about custom grazing to soil testing and water conservation, Soil Health U in Salina, Kansas, January 17th and 18th is a great place to be. Learn from others and network with new friends. Come down and see us at Soil Health U. That's SoilHealthU.net for all the details. The week after that, we're going to be down in Wichita, Kansas, for the 28th annual No-Till on the Plains Conference. Remember what I said about a busy conference season this year? No-Till on the Plains is another great educational and networking opportunity. You can hear from outstanding educators like Candy Thomas on soil structure. Stan Botts and Paul Jassa are also going to be there to share their wisdom. And don't worry, there's plenty of producer talks as well. There's something for everyone at No-Till on the Plains in Wichita, Kansas, January 22nd, 3rd, and 4th. Check no-till.org 
for registration and hotel information. That's notill.org, N-O-T-I-L-L.org. My guest today, Carolyn Rose, the multifaceted maverick of Montana's ranching industry, an absolute agriculture entrepreneur and marketing maestro. Fusing traditional ranching methods with innovative approaches, she co-owns and operates a unique farm-to-table retail store, The Rancher's Daughter, that celebrates local produce and her family's premium beef. A lifeline in her community, Carolyn's store serves as a platform for many small makers to keep their local businesses thriving year-round. Fearlessly challenging conventions and breaking barriers, Carolyn executes a remarkable array of roles with finesse. From marketing, excuse me, from leading a marketing agency to hosting her educational podcast, Cattleman U, to organizing the transformative She's a Hand Ranch Camp, Carolyn's singular vision remains steadfast to encourage and support anyone with the zest to be a part of this extraordinary industry we call agriculture. There you have it. Here we go. Well, hello, Carolyn. How are you today? Good. How are you? Well, I'm not bad. Survived Christmas, at least. How how are things at your house? They were pretty low-key, which I can't complain about. I own a retail store, and I worked on Saturday before Christmas and the Tuesday right after Christmas. So I got to just kind of lay low, which is fine with me. Right on. What What's your store? It's called The Rancher's Daughter. We sell farm-to-table products all based in Montana. So we sell my family's beef and then beef, lamb, chicken, pork, bison, wagyu, duck, eggs, produce, cheese, kind of all of that stuff. How'd you get that started? Well, it's kind of a long story, but um, I'm the co-owner in it. We've got time. Yeah. I'm the co-owner in it with... um, a girl that actually used to be head of operations in my marketing company. And I had always talked about wanting a retail space to sell our family's beef. And I was selling beef kind of in the Walmart parking lots. You know, you'd make a deal, you'd meet someone in Walmart and you pass it from trunk to trunk. And looks like a shady drug deal. Been there, done that. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually got denied for selling in our local farmer's market. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I tried to plead my case. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And so I just said, I want a fair shot at this. And they wouldn't let me. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll start a retail store. And so we opened it last October. Um, Yeah, and it's called The Rancher's Daughter. We feature our family's beef, which is the number one seller by far. But it's been quite a journey. Interesting. Interesting. So, um you sell other people's products in addition to your own family ranch's stuff in there. Um, yeah. It, all right. Where are you guys at? So the store is located in Kalispell, Montana. So up near Glacier Park. Okay. You go to that new Black Rifle Coffee? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, the guy that owns that, Andy Stump, does another podcast that I listen to. So that's why I know that there's a Black Rifle Coffee in Kalispell, Montana. There is. Yep. Very cool. Um, so tell me, tell me about your family and like, have they, tell me about your family history. How'd they get to Montana and have a ranch? So a little bit kind of going back, especially on my father's side, his parents were ranchers in Idaho and our dynamics have always looked a little different. My grandfather is the third generation eye doctor in his family. So he always worked in town. Meaning my grandma ran the farm and the ranch and 
they had purebred Charlotte cattle and really good cattle. My grandpa didn't run a lot of cattle, but he kept these really great genetics. And and then my dad went off to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and was on the livestock judging team. And that's where he met my mom. They came back to the family operation and my grandparents got a divorce. And so my mom was from California. She said, we're either moving to Montana or California. And my dad said, Montana. And he talks about moving to Townsend, Montana, which is outside of Bozeman. And he was worth $3,500 and he was driving a $2,500 pickup. And he came to Montana and he started an outfitting business. So he completely left agriculture and he started an outfitting business. And then he really wanted to be a cattle buyer. And he just weaseled his way into cattle buying. And he decided to go full-time cattle buying when I was born because he said he'd be home more often. Little did he know, but that's <laughs> not quite the case. Um, and then we bought our current place that we're at now in 2011. And currently on the operation is my dad full-time, my brother and his family full-time. And then my husband and I play a role from afar um, and run some cows. Okay, very cool. So why... I, I kind of want to understand a little bit why they they denied you to sell at a farmer's market and and what the driver was behind really wanting to do that. So I moved to Kalispell when I met my husband and our beef is not processed in the county. There is not a federal processor in the county, which is why I wanted to plead my case. So if we back up a little bit, my dad has one sister. And when we first started selling our family beef, my dad said there's a few rules. We have to make sure that his mom and his dad are taken care of with beef and his sister. And so his sister and mother live in Portland. And so he's like, we need to be able to ship if they call and need meat when they come visit. Like, we need to be able to load up the cooler and send it with them. I said, okay. So I wasn't willing to give up our inspection label in order to be able to sell at the farmer's market. So I couldn't sell at the farmer's market because it wasn't processed in Flathead County. And there is a couple state processors here, but not a federal one. And so when I applied, she said, everything has to be sourced and processed in Flathead County. And so I got denied. And I tried to explain, like, hey, there's not a processor here. And it was during COVID times. And so I said, it's really hard to get into a processor. Like we're going to a federal one in the state and no luck. Okay. I, now that I understand why they, why they said that, okay, I, I can understand wanting to keep as much business in the county as possible. But if there's not a federally inspected processor, and your business needs, like your meat business needs federally inspected products so you can cross state lines so you can ship, that's a problem. And maybe in this case that the people that run the farmer's market, now that we're a few months down the line, will look back and go, oh, maybe that was a mistake. But on the other hand, how do you feel now that you have a storefront versus farmer's market about long-term success? I think the storefront provides so many more options. One of the things that was really frustrating to me with all these small makers is, you know, the farmer's market ends in, I think, in November in Montana. They move inside, but it ends in November. 
And we went to the last farmer's market right when we opened the store. And we heard multiple conversations that said, okay, great. I'll see you in April. I'm like, what do you mean? You guys talk about the farmer's market being specifically for locals, right? That's the ideal customer. And you have all of these makers and growers and producers who don't have websites, don't have any way for their customers to buy the product in the off season. And it felt like such a disservice. One of our biggest items in our store is this salsa. And it's made locally here. And there's probably 40 different flavors. And our customers just love this salsa. And he was one of them. No website, nothing. He said, yeah, I just hold out and wait until April. And it just felt like such a disservice that that's one of the reasons why I love the retail store is people can come in and buy things in the off season that they couldn't buy because the farmer's market's closed. The other thing that we've really tried to do is source things that are, they're all from Montana, but source things that maybe they are not finding at the farmer's market. And so they have some more variety and things like that. And then also we work with a lot of farmers um, with the fresh produce. And they don't have to kind of wait until Saturday. Like they can bring it in. We can meet them as it's coming out of the field. And so that really helps them with storage and things like that. Yeah. I, are there a lot of people growing vegetables up there in November and December? No, only the Hutterite colonies in uh, greenhouses. I was going to say, you probably have to have a pretty good greenhouse to do that in December in Montana. Yep. That's the only... They're really, the colonies are really the only place like we can get eggs. There's not anywhere else in Montana that produces enough eggs that are tested and able to be sold in a retail store. So we d we market and offer a lot of products that come out of the colonies. Uh, w without offending anybody, can you maybe tell me a little bit more about, you said the Hutterites? Yeah, so um, Hutterites would be... And I'm definitely not an expert. So if there is someone from the colony listening and I make a mistake, I apologize. Is it, but, simil is it similar to like, um, what is it, Old World Baptist or um, Amish? Very similar to Amish, except where they live more in like dorm style. So they're not independent producers. So they're all one unit. So there's one person that raises hogs and they're in charge of hogs for the entire operation. There's one person who's in charge of the wood shop. There's one person in charge of the garden. So each person, each family member has a role. And they live in a dorm style. So very long building with a bunch of different houses all connected. Um, but they dress very similarly to Amish. Of course, I'm guessing they probably don't want to be compared to the Amish. But very similarly, they do drive vehicles. So... You know, they use electricity. So similar. Look, I mean, so people that like to live simple without a lot of attachment to, without attachment to the outside world and reliance on technology, I guess is how I, how I, how I see that kind of, those kind of people. Yeah. And they're a big part of Montana, especially agriculture. So there's a special number and I think it's 250. When the colony reaches that size, they split and they buy another colony. And they have one banking system internally. So they have like one main account. So they're able to go and buy other properties very, you know, a lot easier than some independent farmers and ranchers. And so 
as soon as the colony gets to a certain size, they split off and build a new colony and they split the families 50-50 and start the colonies over. And so, I mean, there are, it's a really big part of Montana's agriculture economy. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that. Now, for those of us that are bad at geography, Kalispell, you're in the mountains in the north on the west part, correct? Yes, very close to Canada, about an hour and a half to Canada, but kind of up here where there's not a reason that you would come up here unless you were going to Glacier National Park. Like we're not on a freeway. We're kind of out here alone. I understand how that feels. The nearest the nearest freeway or interstate is two hours north, two hours east, three hours south. And I kind of like that. Like people don't just randomly end up in Sun City, Kansas because they took a wrong turn and got lost. Like you have to really, really want to end up or go through Sun City, Kansas to be there. Like it is an intentional mistake to be there. People don't just wander around lost out here very much. Yeah, same here. They either are going to Canada, so they're coming up where they're going to Glacier Park or Whitefish or Flathead Lake, something like that. But it's pretty intentional, which means when people come to visit, they really enjoy it because there's things that they've never just driven by and pulled over to see. I really want to come see Glacier. I you mean, should. Wh while it's, it's still there, I guess. It's fantastic. I mean, I have friends that go multiple times a month. It's great. You have to come kind of in July or August or September so you can go all the way through the park. But it's a great, it's a great visit. Hopefully this year I'll be able to have some time in July or August where I'm not tied to the ranch and be able to do some traveling and road tripping and do some podcasting on the road and maybe see some cool things like Glacier National Park. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. Thanks. So tell me about, tell me about Carolyn. What was your school experience like and how did you end up back on the ranch? Yeah, so I grew up in a pretty small little town. Um, and a hundred percent of our income was derived from agriculture. And actually the town I grew up in, it's called Three Forks, Montana. It's where the Three Forks um, form the Missouri River. And we, my dad just really hustled and he always had something going. He was always trying and testing things. Recently, they came out with um, a report that said Three Forks has the highest disposable income or highest household income of any town in Montana. And that's not the Three Forks that I remember, but I was asking my dad about it. And we have a couple really big plants. So we have a talc plant and a cement plant. And so all of the blue collar workers that work at those are making 70, 80, 90,000. And so that's, I think, what changes kind of the atmosphere of the town. But it's just this really solid, small little town. Um, we were really active in 4-H. And like I said, my dad always had a neighbor's place lease or we were had cattle on someone else's land. Like he was always just working to kind of expand and do some things better. When I graduated from high school, part of my story that's a little bit complicated is I ended up having a couple strokes in high school my senior year and they were from a heart infection. And so when I decided to venture out to college, I had already been accepted to Kansas State University and I had missed from December to May of my senior year. So I graduated, but I never went back to school. And 
for some reason, we thought it was a good idea for me to go to Kansas in August. So I went, and to be honest, I absolutely loved it. I ended up only staying a semester, and my dad bought a new operation and said, hey, if you want to be involved in this, why don't you come home? You can go to Montana State. It's about 60 minutes from home, and we'll just make that work. So that's what we did. And I came home. I went to Montana State, and I was on the livestock judging team, the wool judging team. And it took me five years, but I got a degree in animal science. And my super senior spring, I was applying for jobs. And I distinctly remember I got a sales rep job offer making $100,000, which in 2015 for a college grad was not bad money. And I called my dad and I started crying. I said, Dad, I can't take the job. And here is my Poor dad, who's worked his entire life very hard. And he said, what do you mean you can't take the job? I said, I just don't know that I can work for anyone. And I remember him saying, well, you have to work. This is not an option. And I said, I know, but I just, I don't know that I want to work for someone. And he said, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I want to buy cattle. And he's like, you're not buying cattle for me. He said, you have to go somewhere else and, and figure it out on your own. And so We made an agreement that I could come back and contract work for him and buy cattle for him under my own business. And so I graduated May of 2015 and I started my company the same month. And I think the first summer I starved to death because when you buy cattle, the commission comes when you ship them. And so you can put in all this work and not make any money. And my dad kind of supplemented my starving to death by allowing me to pick rock at the feedlot. And so I did that whenever I had free time. And looking back, I had no idea about running a business. I kind of jumped in, you know, without any safety net. Looking back, I probably should have taken a job for a couple of years, but I was pretty bullheaded. And and so I was involved immediately back in the operation just because I had the time and the capacity to be the extra hand and to really show up. You know, we one year we capped out about 800 heifers. and so. Who's self-employed that can do the night shift? Me. So I immediately came back and started to be involved in the operation. And when I graduated college, I ran some cows. So I already had a mother cow herd started and I was able to kind of assist and, and give benefit to that part. But on the side, I was working my business and probably year two my business took over as the main thing. And then the ranch kind of became the side support that I did when I had time. Okay. And and your business buying, buying cattle, like, and just so I'm clear, I mean, there's, there's different like cattle buyers Were you like order buying for other folks, buying for feedlot, buying, like what kind of buying were you doing? Yeah. So the business really started out as order buying. So we sit in seven sale barns a week, and then we market cattle in the country. We also buy for ourselves. So we have cattle on feed um, in Colorado. We have a backgrounding lot. We run yearlings. So we are we are involved buying cattle for ourselves. When I joined, my dad was buying about probably 15,000 cattle a year, and now we're up together about 30,000 um, a year. But also on top of marketing cattle that way in an order buying sense, we also started to market cattle in a seed stock world. So 
where we would help people with social media and sell their bulls because those two worlds merged pretty well. So I was doing both of those at that time. Very cool. Very cool. Um, what, what kind of cattle are you guys mostly running? I probably already know the answer, but I want to hear you say it anyway. Most are black. <laughs> black, black, white face, commercial types. Yeah. The thing that makes our operation a little bit unique is nowadays, every single day, my dad puts out an order for us. Um, So for me, him, and then we have one other part-time buyer. And they're anywhere from like 250 pounds to 1,100 pounds. And we have a $100 profit locked into them at that price. And so I can sit at the sale and buy one head and it still works. And so for our operation, we get a lot of no tails, missing eyes, um, kind of off-colored ones to run as yearlings and to feed. But mostly for my customers, they like uh, October steer heifer that weighs in the sevens that comes off of mountain country and just hits that feedlot and grows. And then we have, you know, we do a lot of bread cattle as well. And we have a lot of customers that run yearlings. So we buy anywhere from 250 to fats and we, sometimes we buy cold bulls and cows. So just really, if they're out there, we probably have an order for it. Okay. So what, uh, what have you seen go on in the last couple of years in the Flathead Valley with the real estate prices, land prices, and culture changes due to the influx of people uh, moving to the area due to COVID? Yeah, so in Montana, one of the things we're seeing is, of course, some ranches sell to people who have more disposable income than others and who don't want to be involved in production agriculture. And so, you know, that is affecting where the cattle kind of are nowadays. The other thing that we are seeing is people trying to cut costs and doing it in a way that is not advantageous for their cattle or kind of for the industry. And so we went through that a little bit when cattle prices were low and people would start to do things such as not supplement mineral and just some questionable decisions like that that really came back to bite them. But for the most part, luckily in Montana, I would say majority are multi-generation ranches that are pretty solid in their foundation. and they they have a big future where the kids are back and some stuff like that. But man, Montana grew a ton with the show Yellowstone and during COVID. But most of it was either to the city. Um, so people, you know, went to Bozeman, Helena, Kalispell, or people bought little kind of farmettes and where they'd want to raise a couple cows and some chickens. And so we just saw our population change a little bit, but luckily Besides kind of the money piece coming in and buying ranches, we haven't seen that side shift too much. Well, that's good. That's good. It, it's, it's always a concern. You know, when they, a lot of people are moving around, especially the last couple of years with, you know, the social restrictions and people wanting to get off the coast and, you know, and Yellowstone didn't help. And I was sitting here thinking about that. And, you know, you mentioned that you came down to Kansas for six months and lived down here. You said Kansas State, right? Manhattan? Yep. It, it's, we have a daughter that goes there. It's really pretty in Manhattan. 
it's not always like that down here where I am. It, it rains a little more consistently and it's, it's a little more humid. I don't think the summer up there is quite as nice because it's a lot more humid than we normally get, but I digress. It can be really pretty around here. And maybe that's one thing that I, here's what I'm saying. Kansas is undiscovered as far as for tourism, for natural beauty. Because when they built I-70 and I-35, they just put it through the flattest part of the state and said, well, if anybody wants to see anything interesting, they can get off and drive two or three hours and go see it. So there's just not a lot of interesting stuff right next to the interstate for people to stop and see. And what a lot of people think Kansas is, is it's that annoying state between Kansas City and Colorado that I have to drive through so I can go skiing. I'm kind of okay with that. You know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, Taylor Sheridan needs to come down and, you know, film the next thing in the Yellowstone series in Kansas and get a bunch of tourists to come here. I don't really want that. I kind of like our, you know, I kind of like our state that's doesn't really get a whole lot of press, doesn't really get a whole lot of media and screen time, and it stays pretty quiet. It's, I kind of enjoy that. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword in my world because the store requires some visitors to come in. And so I always say they can come to Kalispell, but nowhere else. And you're right. Yellowstone really put Montana on the map. And in a non, you know, Yellowstone's not filmed in Montana. And so people imagine, wow, this is amazing. This is what it's going to look like when I get there. And the house is in Montana, but where they're riding and stuff, that is not in Montana. And so I'm like, it doesn't actually look like what you're going to see. And then, I mean, of course, there's these Instagram accounts that say like overheard in Whitefish, Montana or overheard in Yellowstone. If you don't follow them, you should. They're very funny. But people will be like, so where are all the cowboys? I'm like, okay, the world does not look like what the TV has said. And it's just, it's always makes my heart kind of tug a little bit because it's so beautiful that I want people to experience it. I'm like, come and look at what we have. But then I'm like, can you go home? Yeah, Don't just, stay. Yeah. Just make sure you visit the fuel stop right there. Fill up your tank of gas, then go across the street, make sure you buy some food and then go back wherever the hell you came from. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that is my mentality, but you know, we have a lot of friends that have moved here. We're not born here. And so you have to kind of be a little bit open to that. But yeah, there's a lot of people who'd like to live here. And I just don't know that we have the infrastructure to take them all. And so I hope that they just keep visiting. True. It, it, that's probably a bigger can of worms than I want to get into. But you have a great point about, you know, how tourists help businesses out with extra traffic flow. And I can definitely see that, you know, in the last couple of years of traveling that I've done in the post-COVID world, there's, hang on, what am I saying? Places that, that are easier to get to with, you know, that kind of have some history. Like, hey, come here, you know, tourists, spend your money. They've all done really well. And some new places have been discovered. But I, and I, I, I drive around to some of these other places and, you know, I, I was thinking about your town and your store and how much extra gravy 
those tourists coming into your business bring? Because that's the money that we really need to be trying to attract in our rural communities with local stores. Okay. Somebody from out of town drives by and stops at the Dollar General. Okay. And they spend 10 bucks. Like three cents of that's going to stay in the local community and the rest of it's going to Dollar General headquarters. Somebody comes to your store and spends 10 bucks. That money stays in the community. And what's even more powerful is when that person works for Dollar General corporate and they're coming out on a tour doing touristy things and they spend their money locally, a local business with local products. Like, you know, we just got, we just came out of the holidays and I don't know about you, but for like the 30, 40 days coming up to Christmas, I just really try not to go to town because going anywhere to any store is just absolutely way too many people for me. Just way too many people. And I just wonder, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling again. I'll shut up and let you say something. Well, I thought a lot about this and... It's really easy for us to preach shop local, but then sometimes our behaviors don't also mimic that. And so one thing that I try to be really, really intentional with, and over the holidays, I was a little guilty of it, but not buying things that I know I can find locally on Amazon. And it's so easy in rural America to just be like, well, let's just get on Amazon and let's just order everything. And it's convenient. Like, I'm not, you know, talking negatively about people that that's their behavior. But if we want small business to be successful, we have to also put our money into small business, which sometimes that means not convenient. And I just think a lot about that because I want people to come into my store and buy all of their groceries and, you know, spend $100 or $200 every other week filling up their cart. And then I go online and I order things on Amazon like that. That just doesn't work. You know, if I want people to come in and support my business, we got to figure out a way how to go kind of out of our routine and shop small. And so that's just something I'm trying to be really intentional about. And also when I hear my friends talk about it that are small business owners, I'm like, let's just make sure that what we're expecting, we're also doing. Okay. So shopping small in a small town. That's, that, that, that's kind of what I was, that's the note that I was making here. So and I was kind of trying to think about that. If there's a thing that I need, and I can buy it in the store in town, I'm probably going to go there. My preference is going to be, is going to be a not chain, like a family-owned store, and then a family-owned chain, and then, you know, it kind of works up from there. Like, I would rather go to a Baumgars and a tractor supply just because Baumgars has more of the crap that I need. And anyway, if it can be, if, if it can be, made locally, sourced locally, and bought locally, I will make every effort to buy it. But if it's something that's like, if I can get it for $2 on Amazon, probably going to buy it on Amazon. But I would pay more. I would pay $5 for a $3 thing 
If it was $3 on Amazon, I would pay $5 for it from a local vendor in a local store. A, I get to take it home with me. B, they made it. So I'm giving them $5 to put in their pocket instead of giving Amazon $3 to put in their corporate bank account and pay their, you know, and then pay their supplier a few pennies and then pay the guy that packed it a few pennies. I'd rather give the person that made it a, a few more dollars and see the smile on their face and know that they put a lot of their heart and soul and craftsmanship into it. And you know, I, it, it's the same thing that we talk about all the time when we talk about local food, right? I mean, yes, sometimes buying meat locally or buying produce locally from a local producer in a local small food store, farm to table store, yes, sometimes that may be a little more expensive than going to Walmart. But you can't compare the nutrient density of, of the foods that you sell in, the, in your store to whatever they're selling in Walmart or whatever, you know, Kroger, Dillon's, Albertsons, y'all got up there. No comparison. So I think people's perception of value is a little bit skewed because we're used to getting it right now and real cheap and being able to, being able to say, well, uh, why would I, why would I pay $3 for this in your store, Mr. Local guy? I can go buy it for two bucks on Amazon. That's a person that doesn't understand the importance of local small business. Yeah. One of the things I will say about Amazon is sometimes I'm not even sure what kind of store I would buy that item at. And so that is one of the benefits that I could see with Amazon is I'm like, I don't even know where it would go or who would carry this type of product, but it is perceived value is so interesting. I have people who come in into the store and don't bat an eye at some of our prices. And people oftentimes will say, well, you're higher than Costco. And I'm like, I absolutely am. One, I don't have the export market that Costco does when they get beef from JBS or Tyson or Cargill. So I'm already losing $500 to $1,000 a carcass. Two, I try to pay my brother a livable wage so he can have a retirement, which shocking in agriculture is not common. And I want to make it sustainable so that my niece and nephew and my future kids someday can come back to the ranch and operate. And in agriculture, we have gotten so okay with living with this just barely livable wage. And we see this whole generation of farmers and ranchers where their retirement is soil. And it puts the next generation in this really rough spot. And so, sure, my product does cost a little bit more. It's raised in Montana. It's by, you know, my brother and I are the third generation. But there's a lot more of the story. And I think sometimes we just put the price on things and we forget to explain the why. And the moment people hear that it, I'm a third generation and that I have a niece and nephew who are involved and they see the pictures on the wall, all of a sudden, that price doesn't matter nearly as much if that's something they value. But it is really interesting, the perceived value of things and what people are OK spending money on and what people bulk at spending money on and where they want their money to go. Yeah, it's all just all that psychology is really powerful. Yeah, I was I was thinking about, you know, what you said about Yellowstone. Now. Let's be clear. 
I don't watch the show. I just don't watch a whole lot of TV. But I, do, I have seen a clip where one of the characters, I think it's, uh, I think it's the Beth character, is talking to the Kevin Costner character. Yeah, I know I'm getting names and actors mixed up here, whatever. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. But it was the Beth character talking to the Kevin Costner character about selling their cattle direct and not going to the sale barn and, and whatnot. And it's my understanding that that's not, that that wasn't an isolated incident. Like that's kind of a reoccurring thing on theme on the show. Now, like I said, I don't watch it. But them talking about those issues, the issues that we are actually facing in the real world as cattlemen, not some fictitious John Dutton, them talking about it like that on that platform, that stuck in a lot of people's heads. That started to change how people were thinking about food and, and thinking about the livestock production. And that is definitely, I mean, that's definitely a good thing. And I, I, that's done nothing but bring positive exposure, you know, to the whole issue that we face. But then again, you know, we've got, excuse me, we have the, you know, the price conscious cost-cutting American shopper that just wants it at the lowest price. And if you're not offering, you know, there's somebody down the street cheaper, that's where they're going to take their business. And there's still a lot of people that are going to do that. They're just, I don't know how we're going to get to them. Like, I think educating the consumer so they know what they're buying. That's going to be a part of it. Um, but I wanted to circle back to a comment you made. It says, uh, I think you said their retirement is soil. Now, I'm not exactly sure what you meant by that. And I want to give you a chance to tell me. But I, I started thinking, are you talking about like, their retirement's the soil, like they don't retire until they're in the soil or they're leaving behind a bank account of organic matter in their soil. So what did you mean by that? Yeah. In Montana, we have a whole generation of people who all of the money they've ever earned on their operation went back into the operation. So they're getting 60 or 70 and they have zero money in the bank and zero money in a retirement account. And all they have thought about their whole life is my kids are going to buy this operation and I'm going to be able to retire. And land prices increased so substantially that now the kids can't buy the land for the price that they thought, you know, in order to make it work. And there's this whole generation that doesn't have any retirement. I mean, what they have planned for their retirement is this land. And we're seeing them come up with this, you know, really hard stop. Do we sell this to not our kids because our kids can't afford to buy it? And or do we kind of starve along here and expect our kids to take care of us and pay our bills so the kids can ranch? And then I don't know how you ranch where you're paying for your family and your parents' family all together on the same operation. Like it's a devastating situation happening in a good chunk of the farms and ranches that I'm associated with or I know about, there's just no retirement plan besides the land. I, and yeah, that's an issue. How do we, how do we fix it though? I mean, how do we fix it with land prices skyrocketing? I mean, we can talk about coastal people from leaving due to COVID or whatever. 
Like, look, it's going to happen eventually. Okay. If you have a really pretty area that's accessible, easy to get to, your land price is going to go up. Like at the, the this, this, it's not rocket science and land's been a great investment. They're not making any more. And when you're, uh, when the interest rate goes to seven, eight, nine percent, land seems like a much better investment than, you know, some other risky things. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of money get piled into land and land investments. And like I said, you know, like prices just continue to rise and when we sat down and worked on our, you know, worked on our family partnership and succession plan almost 20 years ago, like, yes, land prices are always going to rise. They always will. We're not making any more land and we're always making more people. Okay. Supply and losses, supply and demand dictate the price of land will increase over time. So we knew this land was going to get more valuable as time goes on. But the, the last couple of years have thrown that curve and those projections completely out the window. Like it, it's increased so much faster than anybody thought, than we thought it would. And I don't know, it, it's still kind of up in the air what kind of changes we're going to have to make and, and what that's going to look like down the future. Um, but it also looks like, you know, trying to do more on the same acres, like generate more cash flow on the same acres. Cause I mean, when you reach the limit of how many cows you can run on the ranch for the grass that you grow, you know, the, the resource that you have available, you either have to make a change, utilize another resource or bring in more resource. So it will reach the limit. I mean, we're already way past the limit of what you can pay to purchase land. And, and just be able to pay that with livestock. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts to what you just said. So Lay them on me. The first is, I think part of the issue is we don't run ranches like businesses. And that most, means Most a few people things, don't. Right? That means few things. We try to pay the least amount of taxes as possible. And don't get me on here saying that I love taxes. I don't, but if you're- is theft, but it's also the price of making a profit. Of success, absolutely. The price of making a profit. And so we have employees that we pay things such as their housing, their utilities. We give them food. We allow them to fill up at the ranch gas. And so they make $25,000 on paper. Well, that's pretty challenging because if they're investing off of the portion that they're making- One, I don't know that in agriculture we invest and put money away as much as we should. So there's all these problems when we don't run it as a business. And I actually have an Instagram post that I posted that we posted yesterday about this. And a lot of people in the comments are like, well, ranching needs to go back to a lifestyle. And I'm like, well, part of the reason that these financial people, money people are coming and buying ranches is because they're not profitable. They can't sustain themselves because of all of these reasons, right? So that's a huge can of worms that that we can talk about. The other thing that I'm a really big believer in is you talked about making more money on the land. And I firmly believe that one of the things that's going to help us continue and ensure the next generation is creativity. 
and is doing unique things on the operation that maybe aren't just running more cows. And one of the ways that we've done that is we host a ranch camp for women. Um, So we have six of them in 2024 where women come out and they work on the ranch for five days. And it has been another source of revenue for the ranch. One, it's an awesome experience. The women just love it and we love having them. But it's this completely unique thing that the only reason we're able to do is because of our setup. But there's no additional things that we need to be able to have this additional income source. And I think on ranches, some of that creativity in whatever facet it looks like is really going to be the make or break on ranches that ranches and farms that continue for the next generation. Okay. Lots to unpack there. Um, ranching as a lifestyle. I think to some extent, ranching has existed as a lifestyle since since the West was one, so to speak. So that's what, 140 years-ish? Okay. Um, and, you know, some, we also say, oh, where'd all the owner-operators go? Eh, the truth is there really weren't that many of us to begin with. It's, it's ranches and farming and ranching in this country has mostly been corporations for the last 150 years. That's just kind of how it's been. Um, but I go back to a quote that I heard, oh gosh, probably 30 years ago now. And it was something my dad came back and said when he came back and, and said, after he went to ranching for profit for the first time, he said, if you want to be a cowboy, get a job. And I get that's offensive to a lot of folks. And you know, like we said earlier, a lot of, a lot of ranches aren't run as a business. Maybe it's because we don't know how, or maybe it's because we just want to play cowboy. And look, if you, if you want a lifestyle ranch and you want to have cows and you want to spend time on a horse every day, that's fine. Like I have nothing against that. I'm just not that guy. I am in business to make money. (laughs) That's why I am here. I am in business to make money. The ranch supports me. The, the ranch, that's how I make my living, is I have land. I am a land manager. I'm not just a cattleman. I am a land manager. So, you know, concessions and other enterprises. As we go forward in time and land continues to get more expensive, we're going to get more and more investment money buying up properties. We're going to get more and more lifestyle cowboys that have watched Yellowstone too many times, okay? We're getting a lot of those. We've always had them. They kind of come and go and, you know, I imagine it, it's kind of a rising and falling pattern. And, you know, your, your women's ranch camp, want to hear a little bit more about it. One of the things that, that I kind of made in my notes here, and I was thinking about some ranches in Texas that I just kind of have passing knowledge of, okay? not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but as if you're a rancher out there and you're thinking about, okay, what other enterprises can I do? You know, what else can I utilize? What other resources can I utilize on this ranch? I think there's some dangers of like, well, we'll turn into a hunting ranch. Okay. Don't throw away all your ecological goals 
in order to drive hard towards that hunting ranch thing just because that's what making that's what's making money right now yeah it might be okay for a little while but that market will move on or you'll have something happen to your animals and that market will crash eventually maybe i don't know i'm just but the day here'd be what i would see is take an operation that's primarily cattle and you know struggling and then i could see five years down the line it's like well we've completely abandoned cattle the grass and the trees and the shrubs on this on this ranch have just grown up and are not really biologically healthy and stable but we're making a great living hunting pigs on it like oh okay so you let it go backwards ecologically so an invasive species could come in and colonize it and now you're going to make money by just managing that population of invasive species and culling them back and people pay you to come do that okay that's fine i wouldn't want my ranch to look like that that's just me but i'm just saying that there might be you know that could be a danger of that could be a danger of like we're going to do this to save the ranch and then five years later that's all you're doing and the ranch looks like crap well, maybe I just made all that up. So tell me about Women's Ranch Camp. I want to hear a little more about that. Yeah, one thing I want to add to what you just said is I think sometimes we think about extra income on the operation. We we like overthink it. One of the things, one of my friends, she makes field meals for her family. She's already making like seven of them. I said, could you make five or 10 more and sell them for 20 bucks each? cheaper than going down to the local diner and she's like absolutely i mean that's a hundred or two hundred dollars right to oh, just yeah. be able to put in your pocket every single night of doing something that you're already doing and i think that's what's really fun about having land is the options and the possibilities are endless which is how we got to she's a hand ranch camp and i'll tell you a little backstory about how it started i i just wanted to have women come to the ranch and be able to do all the hands-on things. So not a dude ranch, but very much like brand cattle, vaccinate, draw blood, break check. I mean, I wanted to bring that element. So I called my brother on the phone and I said, would you be okay with women coming to the ranch and learning all of these things? And he said, nope. <laughs> and then he thought for a minute and he said, well, Actually, I think that's a really good idea. He said, if we want women involved in agriculture, someone has to give them the opportunity to gain confidence and try things that they don't. So what we do is she's a hand. This year is a little different because we have a couple special editions, but the traditional camp is women come for four and a half or five days. The first day we do leadership. We talk about the operation. We practice vaccinating, branding, ear tagging, all just kind of in that camp. And then we go to the operation and they get to try. We open our backgrounding law up to them and we just say, it's your oyster. What do you want to do? What do you want to learn? What do you want to try? Um, we do a branding where they tie down the calves. We rope and um, they have to set the ropes. They brand, they vaccinate, they ear tag, they cut the bull calves, they mouth cows, they preg check. 
They um, sometimes we semen test. I mean, they are hands on, hands dirty in this operation. And then on the very last day, we usually get 70 to 100 yearlings and they have to process them from start to finish without any help. So they get seven or eight um, cattle at each station. And I want them to do the station enough that they feel comfortable. So someone's out there back sorting. Um, someone's running the bud box. Someone's running the alley. Someone's running the chute. Someone's implanting. Someone's ear tagging. Someone's um, giving vaccination. Someone's branding. And someone's prey checking if needed. And so each woman stays in their role for seven or eight head until they feel comfortable. And then they rotate. And without any kind of help we support we answer questions but they do it themselves and if they miss one through the shoot then whoever's out there sorting sorts it out from the group and gets it back in and it's amazing about two days in you just I mean it's like the women arrive one person and they leave a different I mean they a lot of them come from operations but they'll say you know my dad always does the branding or I've never ran the shoot because we never had time to teach me or whatever it may be. And then we have women that come that have zero experience. I mean, have seen a cow while driving down the freeway type of experience. And it's one of the best things we do on the operation. My dad and brother, the teacher, they love teaching. And the women just love to be there. I mean, we've had tears on the very first day just saying, I already know this is the right spot for me. I just love being here. And it's one of the coolest things we do. This the last camp we did in 2023, a lot of them wanted to learn to drive the heavy equipment. So my dad's like, great, let's fire it up. You want to learn? That's what you're here for. And so we did lots of bobcat driving, um, some backing up with a truck and trailer. I mean, just anything they want to gain more confidence that we can provide them, we do. But You said teaching them how to back a truck and a trailer. And I just thought, you know what? That's probably something that a lot of folks ought to pay a little bit of money to go have some training and learn how to do is, you know, if, if you could back a 20 foot goosenecker in, you could pretty much do about anything else. It, it just made me think, cause I have a friend that, um, I just saw her posts on social media yesterday. She rented a U-Haul trailer in Wichita. And she was going to pull it with like a little key or something and had to end up renting a, like a Dodge diesel to, to pull this U-Haul with, but she was pulling a U-Haul from Wichita to Southern California and back to help her friend move. All right. Maybe a little flag here doesn't make sense. It was cheaper to do a round trip out of Wichita than it was to do a one way from SoCal to Wichita. A little weird. So I was. So I was texting her last night and I was like, Hey, just, you know, just to let you know, turn big, stop long, plan ahead when you're pulling a trailer. Just three things probably ought to, you know, probably should know. Look, when you show up to the U-Haul to hook onto a trailer with a Kia, you probably don't have a lot of towing experience. So I figured a couple of, you know, just a couple of quick tips might go a long way. And then, you know, listen to you talk, I realized like, we take it for granted. I mean, I don't know how young I was when I learned how to back up a trailer, but I remember dad yelling at me that I was doing it wrong. And we take it for granted that, you know, we know how to do these things. I mean, I can hop in about anything and make it go and I can make it, I can back it into a parking spot, everything up to and including a 53 footer. 
you put tandems behind me, I'm kind of screwed. B doubles, not going to mess with it. Anything short of that, I'm golden. Not a lot of people have that. Much less a big open space that they can get in, maybe make an error and not hit anything. So I, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. The other thing, too, is a lot of what we've heard from attendees is they don't feel comfortable getting outside their role on the operation because it's always so cutthroat. Like, we have to get these cattle processed. We have to get this calf pulled. We have to, like, all of these things. And so they don't feel very comfortable and confident, right, trying new things or trying something and making a mistake. Or they don't have the opportunity. And so that's one of the things we talk a lot about at Ranch Camp is like, it doesn't matter if you've never done it, if it's uncomfortable, if it takes you a hundred times of running cattle through the chute, we'll just keep bringing them back. Like, we want you to do it enough that you can gain the confidence. And it's amazing when you just kind of provide the opportunity for them to try things and for them to increase their confidence, what happens through that experience. Yeah, like, and I've seen operations like that where everything's an emergency, everything's a crisis, everything's a rush. Like, I don't have time to teach you that right now. Or just stand over there. I need to do this because if I don't do it, it's going to break worse. And gosh, you guys, I, you got to get out of that mentality where you're in crisis management mode, you're in crisis response all the freaking time and it, you got to take time to train people because someday you're not going to be there or someday something's going to happen to you and that other person that's been riding around watching you do shit that you haven't let do anything because you're so deep in crisis mode something's going to happen to you someday i guarantee it and you're not going to be able to work somebody else going to do your shit and if they don't know how because they don't know the why you have failed as a mentor and a teacher. You know, oh, we don't have time to do it that, that way. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You don't have time to be in a rush. That's what you don't have time for. You do not have time to be in a rush. You don't have time to rush things and do things rashly and without, without a little bit of planning and thought. At least that's how I think about things. That's what initially spurred the ranch camp idea was I saw two of our neighbors lose their spouses. Um, one kind of older lady, not older, probably like in her 50s or 60s, and one in her 20s. And both lost their husbands within a very short time of each other. And they're both very talented women. But one of the things that I was noticing was my brother would be going over there to support. And my brother loved it. You know, this is no negative. But I just thought, these are women that I know are very capable. What is what is lacking is some confidence, not skill. And so they don't feel like they've practiced this enough or they've done this enough to be able to do it. It's not that they're lacking the skill. And so that's really where I first saw it. And these two women, like I said, are exceptional hands. They run well-oiled operations. But it was almost like there was a few things that you knew they had never done on the operation or maybe had only done one time, but they had been a partner in the operation, but that just wasn't their role. And so I thought about, like, what are these operations where the woman's role has been 
to take care of the kids or to be cooking and they actually haven't been outside much. And then something happens or the hired man quits and they have to get thrown into it. We, you know, we have to provide this opportunity for them to learn and to try things. And so it was just this combination of wanting to get more women involved in agriculture, kind of seeing the neighbors and saying, what could we do? You know, what could they have done to learn a little bit more confidence in this one one or two areas? And also kind of wanting to show our operation in a unique avenue and show people that, you know, it doesn't have to be a hundred cow, black cows in the field. Like you can be a rancher and make money in agriculture and it can look, you know, very colorful, very different. Yeah, for sure. So I think a lot of the attitudes that are still kind of persisting in ranching today kind of started to creep in in the fifties and sixties. Post-World War II, you know, we had a lot of Western movies, cowboy culture. And I'm not saying that, you know, that any of that was wrong because, I mean, it is what it is. And I just, I just feel like that's what drove a lot of the culture was, was the cowboy movies of the 50s and 60s. And, well, we're the men. We're going to go take care of this. You women stay in the house and do the cooking and cleaning and, you know, you can come out. And I remember a lot of that attitude. Well, okay, maybe not that attitude, but, you know, similar things in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up and learn how to work cattle and, and things. You know, you get told, well, just stand over there by the fence. Don't do anything. I'm like, okay. Well, now I'll tell somebody, go stand over there and watch how this person moves and watch how the cattle respond to this person. Okay. If you're standing there, at least make an observation of what, what you should be looking at. Maybe those old timers didn't know what to tell us to look at. I don't know. But I always remember, you know, just kind of like you were saying, well, we don't have time to teach you that because we just have to get this done. No, you have plenty of time to teach us that. You just want to go to the beer joint and drink beer early. Okay. I remember working cattle back in the back in the nineties. Like when you started when you started the rope and drag, you had your best guys on the horse. Cause I mean, you put your best you you put your A team up first, right? Get it done. Now, whenever we do it, whenever uh, the the couple of crews that I work with, with on calves, especially if they're coming to my ranch to work my calves. I want that nine-year-old on that 12-hand high pony. I want to put that young man in a saddle and you can get up there and you can throw loops until your arm won't move. And I don't care if you catch one in five. Just bring it to the fire because those kids need to practice and they need to practice in a live fire environment where there are people watching them, watching them, being able to give them some critique, but also supporting them when they're only catching one calf out of five loops. Like, guys, don't say shit. Like, you got to remember, you were 12 once too, okay? And you were trying to figure out how to throw that thing. And by the same token, don't make fun of that 35-year-old that's out there throwing loops for the first time. You might be good at it, you might be a little younger than him. You also might have 20 years more experience. But you know what? 
that guy's probably been doing something for 20 years that you've never thought about doing. And if you try to do that thing he's been doing for 20 years, he's going to kick your ass. So maybe don't give him too much of a hard time when he can't throw a loop worth of crap. One of the things, we don't run very many mother cows, 130 or maybe 200, something to that nature. Um, and my brother always has his brandings, our brandings on a weekday. And I always said, why do you have our brandings on a weekday? And he said, because that means all of the cowboys are at their job. And so we can let the wives and the kids. And he loves to rope with his wife. And he said, there's no pressure. It's just a couple cows. We're just roping. We're going to do it. We're going to go slow. We're going to make a whole day of it. And that was one thing he said years ago is, I want to provide a branding where, one, I get to invite who I want to invite. And people don't just show up because they hear your branding. And I can let the wives and the kids rope. And the kids can, you know, cut the bulls and doctor. And we can go slow. And we can do it right. And just allow practice. And I think we just don't. We don't allow enough kind of experiments or practice in our operations. We get so busy on getting the task done that, one, we miss out on a ton of learning opportunities. I remember someone told me one time that when I take Jason and Allie, which are my niece and nephew, they're eight and five, when I take them over to the operation and we're in the four-wheeler side by side, they're like, you're always talking to them. I'm like, yes, I'm talking to them. As we're driving down the feed bunk, there's so much to learn. I'm showing them how, depending on the speed, how fast the cattle back up, showing them things to look for, bad eyes, we're checking water, we're looking at all of these things, the ration, how much is left on the ground. I mean, I said, of course I'm talking. There's things to learn just when we're driving the feet, you know, the four-wheeler side-by-side up and down the alley. There's always things to be teaching and to be learning and to slow down enough to allow people to notice. And there's always new observations with the livestock or, or with the grass, with the forage, with the soil. There's always something to look at. There's always something to observe and to, and to learn from. Absolutely. All right. Tell me about your podcast. So I have a podcast called Cattleman U Podcast, which is in the Cattleman U umbrella of the companies which is an educational platform for men and women in agriculture who want to do things differently. And we have a couple different offers. So she's a, she's a Hand Ranch Camp is in there. But we have a couple different offers um, along with the podcast. We podcast once a week. And sometimes it's me talking about the market. Sometimes we have guests. I just really want to provide an opportunity and interviews where people can learn and hear people doing something that's a little different. Maybe they can get a couple ideas for their operation. Maybe they can try something that they've never thought of. Um, but I just think we, in agriculture, we don't have the opportunity to listen to some people who aren't on conference stages. So that's always my goal is to kind of shine the light on people who are doing things well, um, who have something to say, but maybe aren't the people who are being the keynote speaker at conferences. It takes a lot to be a keynote speaker at a conference. I'm, I'm understanding. And I've, I've ever, I'm pretty solid breakout session guy. I've never been a keynote guy and maybe that'll change someday. Um, so where else can we find you on the internet? Uh, yep. So Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, 
um, the podcast. I also have another company we didn't talk about much today called K-Rose Company, which is our marketing agency. So we have platforms for all of that. We're pretty active on our email list. Um, so we send out a Cattleman U email every week and a K-Rose Company every week. And then, of course, the Rancher's Daughter on all the platforms as well. And we send out weekly emails there too. Awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, how do you want to end it today? Well, I think one of the things that I always say and is so important for people to hear is if you want to be involved in agriculture, we want you to be involved in agriculture. And I know sometimes this industry, you know, I talk about it. I'm guilty. I'm the third generation. You know, my niece and nephew are the fourth. It seems like the barrier to entry is challenging. But if you have a desire to help feed the world in any capacity, we need you and we want you. And so don't don't be nervous about trying to enter this industry or trying to try something new. I think for a lot of operations, creativity is going to be the key to success in the next generation. And so we need you. We want you in this industry and we need creative ideas. Great stuff. Great message. And um, I like it. No matter where you're at on the spectrum of trying to feed feed the world, feed your community, feed the starving pygmies in New Guinea, agriculture is how it gets done. Absolutely. All right, Carolyn Rose, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you.